now I've got 50 years in this industry and now looking at the paying it forward before I pass on this earth. And a lot of that is through writing and trying to like how to protect some of the guys that are in the industry and you know what mistakes that we made, uh, what mistakes you can prevent today, how to take that mudslide that's coming down to the installer and push it back uphill a little bit. Hardwood floor pros around the world, shut down your saws, turn off your sanders, take off your headgear, and let's simmer down, people. If you got any coffee, sip some of that, and let's get the lead out. you got a lot to learn here today, and today's episode is 36.2% of your final grade for the semester. We are not messing around here today, people. Welcome to ATWF, all things wood floor, brought to you by Wood Floor Business Magazine. As usual, I'm your host, Steve Diggins, writer, author, blogger, floor pro with Wood Floor Business Magazine, and branch manager for WoodPro Inc., a division of Horizon Force Products. You all know why we're here. You're here because you are the best of the best in our industry, and you want to hear from the best and the best in our industry. Well, guess what? You came to the right place. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Roy Ryko, president of National Woodford Consultants at NWFC.net. Roy is the expert's expert specializing in inspections, forensic floor studies, and legal representation as an expert flooring technician, inspector, and consultant. Roy is a Minnesotan with decades of hardwood flooring experience in, on, and off the court, and we are going to talk to him today about architectural and NWFA guidelines versus manufacturer's instructions, what's the difference between a flooring contractor and a contractor, claims, industry standards, certifications, commercial flooring, union flooring, subcontracting, outsourcing, who's playing the dumb card and who's stepping up to the plate? Well, you know who's stepping up to the plate? Roy and I are stepping up to the plate right here at ATWF, All Things Wood Floor, brought to you by the brilliant and talented floor pros at Wood Floor Business Magazine. Once again, I'm your host, Steve Diggins. Join me and Roy Ryko as we set things straight here. So let's ring the bell. Court is now in session. Wood Floor Pros around the world. Let's get to it. All right, Roy Ryko, welcome to All Things Wood Floor, sponsored by Wood Floor Business Magazine. Great to have you aboard, sir. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, Roy, I went over a bunch of notes and things on on your, you know, where you work, et cetera, what you do, and make sure that I get all of this correct. You are the principal consultant for National Wood Flooring Consultants, NWFC.net? Correct. Okay. And uh, I wanted to throw that out there because I've looked at your website. I've used it a bunch of times. If people are looking for heavy-duty technical assistance, you offer more technical assistance than most anybody in the field, even with your lab testing, et cetera. You're out of Northfield, Minnesota, and it looks like about 19, 20 years just in doing that part of the business? Uh, correct. Okay, gotcha. And you are a forensic wood floor expert, which I hope to grow up to be one day. Uh, you're an expert witness in legal matters, and you also do a lot of wood flooring inspections. I think you have more certifications than anybody I've ever seen. I travel pretty much the U.S. for inspections. And, you know, that brings up where we were going to go with this. I have a, a lot of questions and things I wanted to discuss. But when, when you were talking about, um, you know, being in, in a lot of places and doing inspections around the country, one of the things I think that that we've brought up just between text messages and emails, et cetera, is uh, with COVID and everything, the world's coming a lot closer together. I always just did my work in my area, but I've had the opportunity to be in the Florida market, the the Mid-East Coast market and the Northern New England market and where you are and traveling, we started talking a little bit about how there's a different definition of 
what a contractor and a flooring contractor is in each market. Um, let's just jump right in there. Where, what do you, where do you, where would you start with that conversation? Well, when you start looking back on history of you know twenty years ago, you had you know with the phone book advertising in the in the yellow pages, um, maybe even a little more than twenty years ago, but it's it's very focused strictly on flooring contractors. And so if you were looking for doing a floor, that would be the location you do. Today is based on a lot of retailers. Um, We're seeing general contractors having their own uh, carpenters install it. So when we start classifying them as a flooring contractor, the flooring contractors is a specialty and where their company does specialty work. When you start looking at a okay, we've got a you know a seven hundred and fifty thousand dollar house, and the builder wants to put in, you know, a five dollar square foot product. He can hire an installation service, you know, subcontract out. Those are not flooring contractors. So the terminology gets kind of tangled up in our industry here in Minnesota. You do see you know eighty five ninety percent of the work being done today by uh, retailers and subcontract labor. That's heavy duty compared to where we are and being here 40 years. It, it, it's so heavily contractor driven generationally. You know, I wanted to become a, um, a consultant in the metro D.C. area. And to do that, I had to get a flooring certification, which we've never even heard of up here. I had to study for months, go down, take a four hour exam in a room where they took all my belongings away. And I sat at a computer with a tablet, no pen, no calculator, phone, watch, nothing. And I had to know carpet, ceramic, stone, tile, hardwood flooring, everything to get a certification or else the businesses that we work with down there can't operate without a certified flooring contractor. And that's a where you're saying that we don't have that here, but down there, it's a big deal. Do you see that there are spots in the country that have these certification programs and others that just don't? I mean, aside from the NWFA focused on flooring, do, do you see that these are certifications that are around the country or different? Oh, much different around the country. You know, you look at like, for example, some of the claims I've been in Montana, uh, there is no standards. And so, I mean, we're looking at of not even complying with NWFA standards. And so it's back to, again, as failures that are just um, unbelievable. It's unfortunate, but it's unbelievable. Let me ask you this. Where do you see people are getting more for their dollar or getting paid more? Uh, I know in the metro D.C. area, I find there's a certification level. The quality of the work is severely lacking, and people probably pay more for hardwood flooring there than they do anywhere else I've ever seen. Oh, you'd see any major city, Chicago, Minneapolis, um, New York, you're looking Boston. I mean, you all union wages and doing a lot of the condos. Uh, we've seen a lot of the condominiums of just explode in the last uh, eight years. Uh, Minneapolis alone, I mean, it's just every corner you look at, they've been popping up new condominiums. So you're looking at all of that's commercial. And so therefore, it's uh, your commercial. Those are typically as your, your commercial flooring contractors that are union that will do those projects. But far as doing just general uh, residential would be just standard, you know, an installation service and push through a retailer. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That when, now that you mention it, when I would get called to go, let's say it's an hour from where I live in New Hampshire to Boston, and on occasion someone would call us in because they, they knew somebody who knew somebody and say, we really need you to repair something. And they would say it's in the Prudential Building in Boston, and we, we thought that's fine. And they say, but don't bring your van. We'll get you a rent-a-van. And I didn't understand that. Well, I didn't, I'd never heard of flooring unions. I didn't know that they were 
pretty strong right in the heart of Boston, and us going in and repairing their work was a huge no-no. So we'd walk around the mall, wait till it closed, and the food court closed, and they'd slide the door open, and we'd park the van seven blocks away, and they'd bring our stuff in, and we would work all night. I had, I had no idea this existed. And you like you're saying, you go to a major city, the close you get to the heart of that city, it's, it's very controlled. There's a lot of union work. Uh, in my neck of the area, it's so rural. I see it in Boston, but not in New Hampshire. I see it in Tampa and Jacksonville, but not out in the outer counties. Where do you think problems arise with not having that particular defining moment on exactly what a contractor is for your specific area? During inspections, you're looking at is, just to give you an example, that the retailer sold it to, to you as a, as a customer. And then he outsources that to a subcontractor. The subcontractor, um, number one, rarely will read the installation guidelines. Two, is when you defer back to is the NWFA, they said, well, we can't get the NWFA installation guidelines because that's for NWFA members only. So we are not an NWFA member. So their excuse is, is they cannot get those guidelines to comply with the standards. And so that is where I see a lot of issues coming into. And then the not or the union, uh, they all comply, you know, what the usually it'll be is having the um, uh, specification from the architect going through on the manufacturer, and they will then comply with the installation guidelines, both with flooring and adhesive and environment. That's not accurate, is it, as far as someone saying they can't follow NWFA guidelines? I mean, for years, uh, as a member, as a distributor, we made sure that material got to people. And if they needed a free manual, we would buy them from the NWFA. Um, I've, I've been to court. You've been there a million times. It's kind of the governing body for when you're asked where are the legal parameters and what are your guidelines. One, it's always by manufacturer, whatever they printed or put on that box or now their website. But that NWFA material is fairly easy to get a hold of, isn't it? It is, except for the installer will play the dumb card and said, I was never provided that by the retailer. And so I didn't have anything in writing, uh, any, any printed material. So again, it's that failure on the seller to provide that to the subcontractor. You know, Howard Brickman and I looked at a project. I didn't even know he had gone there. It was in New Hampshire. It's a, it, it wasn't, even, my wife's a realtor. She couldn't even find it in the real estate guide. It was on the local Channel 9 channel as Mansion of the Month. And it was beautiful. It was on the water. It was engineered end grain of all things. And, you know, when we went out to inspect it and they brought in a, fr um, a, a gentleman from the wood industry, a, a PhD in, in wood um, that Howard knew. And the crazy thing was if you just walked in and opened a box and grabbed one of the hundreds of pieces of literature that were thrown around like leaves, the bold print says, before you start, please turn to page like 2B and read instructions for your installation. Okay, so I'm looking at the floor. I can see what the problems are. I get an idea where we're going, but I decide, well, it's simple math. Let's do this. When you took that first piece of paper out and you flipped it over, it says, do not glue this product down. And that's exactly what they did, not only over Jipcrete, but, and then I called the manufacturer in Germany. You talk about, you know, not really having the ability to, to jump in and help out. It was, it was never going to happen, but it said very clearly, there are reasons to not glue this product down, and they did it. And what do you think happened? They had every technical nightmare that they should have had for doing this. Like you're saying, it seems simple. 
open up the literature and read it. Correct. They're not doing that, are they? Most guys aren't doing that. And a lot of it today that um, I was told by other manufacturers and technical directors um, that, you know, you say it used to be like in every box. And then it went to every two boxes and they figured how much money they could save on, on paper. That's true. And then they went into is doing every fifth box. And then finally it goes, it'll be printed on the outside is look at our website. Right. And so therefore it's printed on the box to go to the website for the installation guidelines. And it's really very simple for the, you know, the installer, if he's getting his work orders from the retailer, he, you can go to the website and pull down all the installation guidelines. Heck, even while you're fishing in Northern Minnesota, you can still read them while you're just sitting there waiting for a bobber to go down, but they don't do it. No, they don't. You, you bring that up about every other box. You're right. I've seen some where I've had my guys go back, check our inventory and rip open four, five, six. You'll, you'll find one. They're in, they're in there somewhere. Um, or like you said, you'd tell somebody to be directed to a website, but by then there's probably already an issue. There's probably already a claim. There's probably always a complaint. And we try to kind of dissect between the two. What's a complaint? What's a legitimate claim? And then there's always something kind of between it all. I've read a lot of what you do. You, you write a lot, and I'm lucky enough to get to edit the articles that we put through WFB, and I get to read your stuff first. And I'm furious with you because you're the only one I haven't been able to pick anything apart. I don't know if I'm afraid of your background or I just can't get dirt on you because it's always it's always spot on. Um, do you think that the the idea, and you get this from you and a lot of other consultants, is to be doing what you're doing to keep people from the beginning from making the mistakes, not to jump in after and become a witness? It's Isn't that kind of what you attempt to do most days? Yes, because... A lot of the general contractors I've been involved with, especially when you're doing your commercial, they will sit there and go through the litigation part and you're anywhere from, you know, 500 to a million dollars in claims. And then it's kind of, well, my inspection fee or my consulting fee won't be any difference in cost, but we will prevent that failure and have all the parties involved accountable to the standards by the manufacturer, NWFA and the architect. I will make sure that they do their due diligence to complete that. And that's where the general contractors today are looking at. It's a way bigger savings on that end, simply because we're doing a protection policy right. and making them all accountable for it. And with today's technical in, you know, equipment we have today, you know, like we're using hobo data loggers in order to make sure all the job site conditions are done pre, during, and post installation. So that the general contractors covered, the flooring contractors covered, and this is what's going to have to come down to in the future because I don't see, I mean, just just to fly out to go to Montana is like a five thousand dollar bill. Right. Then you go into all the litigation. You get done with that, you know, you're twenty five, thirty thousand before you're done, and we still haven't even got to court yet. And so it's back to is it's where you can do uh, a lot of the consulting that you can do for fairly reasonable because everything is done all PDFs today and all all the specs and everything is done. And then you have your, uh, like we just got done with a uh, construction Zoom meeting and having everybody online to make them accountable for this is what the standard is. And so, you know, it, it's it's been more productive that way, especially during COVID because, you know, the construction didn't slow down. It's just a matter of, you know, inspections did, but we turned it and gone after the consulting side to make it more productive for the builders. I, I found that some of the inspections that I did 
were done via somebody's iPhone and a lot of questions and, yeah. you know, just having eyes and ears on the site with the tape measure and the right equipment and some meters and things. Do you, do you find when you're involved in all of this and at that point when there's litigation or something, there's always, it comes down to finger pointing and, you know, I like to tell people, listen, I'm not an attorney. I'm not a witness. I'm going to explain to you what I feel went wrong with your floor and we're going to back that up with other people's opinions exactly, not just opinions, but facts on what happened here, then you people can decide if there's somebody at fault. But at the end of the day, when all these particular cases, are they still looking for, do they still need to have the solution to get these floors straightened? Or is everybody just parting the ways? Because I find that the people that do that, that walk right back in with the next contractor into the exact same problem. To answer your question, typically when you go back to inspection, you are there to report the facts what was the causation of, of the failure and then not be part of the remedial action. Right. If they end up wanting to be part of the remedial action, then we send them out a consulting contract, which now separates me from my inspection services into consulting. And we can go through on that of trying to do uh, the proper procedure in order to get that corrected. Have you ever uh, intercepted this to the point where, Prior to any heavy-duty litigation, you were able to formulate something to make the matter better, get the floors repaired, get things moved forward? I have, yes. Well, I, I asked that because I had a big one in my area, and um, I happened to walk into the site, get it all inspected, talk with the guys, brought in the contractors, and within a week, we had it all repaired. And I got a phone call from a private jet with an attorney threatening the living tar out of me because we, we made this all go away. It, it was a bad situation with a lot of humidity, a lot of moisture, a lot of problems, but we were able to put together a plan that not only set the floors right, it was far less than what the litigation and time and trouble were going to be. Usually, there's a consumer on the other end that just wants their home and their life back, and it costs more to drag other people into this. So you have been in that situation where you were able to just get a remedy first. Yes. Well, we've had, for example, when you have a loss... And then you'll have the insurance company going into going after, you know, the the attorney will then go after the general contractor, the flooring contractor. You start getting into his mechanical contractor because HVAC wasn't set up correctly. And mm. you get the, all of the insurance companies involved. And I've been in several where we have like five different insurance companies involved and they will sit and try to get their experts and then they look back to and they read my CV and they go back and said, you know what? They all agree that they will use one expert and that will be me Good. and try to come up with some type of remedial that would be. And that's where I don't get involved in the monetary uh, issues. What typically is, is what is the best way to uh, get the floor back on track and get performance? Hey, Wood Floor Pros. This is Kim Walgren, the editor of Wood Floor Business. Did you know that a subscription to Woodfloor Business Magazine is free to anyone in the wood flooring industry? All you have to do is go to woodfloorbusiness.com, click subscribe, and fill out the quick form. You can also sign up for the WFBE News to make sure you don't miss the latest news in the industry delivered right to your inbox twice a week. That's it for now. Let's get back to our conversation with longtime wood flooring pro, Roy Ryko. I got a call a couple days ago from a place in Buffalo, New York, and they had a problem that's way too far for us, so I set up the Zoom thing. We were going to you know, look at the floor and kind of get some ideas of where to take it. Well, they got in a floor inspector, and I didn't know that. We got talking, 
And I happened to say, well, you sound like you know what you're doing. Why don't you just do that? He was an inspector. Uh, he, he was brought in later. And I, they wanted me to come in and rebut something. And I said, listen, this guy's highly qualified. The two people worth their salt that know what they're doing. The floor will always tell the story. Why don't you read his report? I'll just tell you if it sounds reasonable to me. I read everything he came up with. I talked to him before, during, and after. We looked over all the data. Not only did he come up with a solution, they didn't need two of us. He, This gentleman was point on. He had all the training and all the background in the industry necessary. Same with what you're saying. If you were involved, or like I've had here with Howard Brickman, you know, just I have things to do. Let the expert handle this. You're the person that's going to get in and not only look for a solution, but kind of let people be aware. And you know this. When you go to court, judges don't like to have their time wasted. They'll come in, they'll crack a gavel and say, anybody here wasting my time right now, we're going to take a recess. And when we come back, let's, I know people have legitimate issues to resolve here. But if you're wasting my time, there's going to be a problem. And that's when you know the judge will say, I'm looking for two people. Somebody that has a legitimate beef and then somebody that just wants something for nothing. Do you see a lot of that or either side of that? Yeah, I do. Yeah. It's um doesn't matter what part of the country you're in, but that's pretty much the truth. When they say they're in tears and they say, I need a hotel room and my child's college to be ba- paid for, and my cousin is an attorney, and he says my mental anguish, and really, we're just, my job, your job is to figure out, let's just figure out what went wrong and not do it again, and let's get you your floors and, and your life back. Did you try in the beginning to do anything other than flooring? How'd you get in flooring? I tried to be in construction the first thing i did was a floor and never did anything the rest of my career but hardwood flooring from that day had to change my letterhead my business cards everything how did you get into the wood flooring industry um it was my high school wood shop teacher and what they did is they went through and kind of like he he just kind of filtered out the kids that had some kind of gift in woodworking and who would be a hard worker and i ended up going one summer with him doing hardwood flooring uh with the, the employer that did hire me, Art Ludke, and ended up where I enjoyed it. And so I continued uh, after high school. Like you said, once I got into it, I mean, Art, when, when he did back then, parquets back in the 70s were really popular. And so he duplicated a lot of the uh, old style uh, patterns. You know, we did the Fountain Blows, the Bordeaux, the Thomas Jeffersons, and we did those for a lot of custom home builders. And then we got into the wide ranch plank flooring that was, you know, that we're seeing today, but we did planks that were solid three, uh, solid three quarter that were up to 12 inches wide. Um, it was just, it was every job was something different that art would sell. And so I really enjoyed working with it. My mentor, Jens Wilsliff was a craftsman that really um, enjoyed teaching me uh, the tricks of the trade before he uh, decided to retire I think it's important that a lot of guys like now I've got 50 years in this industry and now looking at the paying it forward before I pass on this earth. And a lot of that is through writing and trying to like how to protect some of the guys that are in the industry and, you know, what mistakes that we made, uh, what mistakes you can prevent today, how to take that mudslide that's coming down to the installer and push it back uphill a little bit. And so, you know, I was um, fortunate enough, and then looking at, you know, in about 2000, I was considering of what am I going to do uh, for retirement? And I thought, well, be inspector. And then it kind of went to NWFA and we went through the inspection program. And uh, one thing led to another. The inspections became uh, overwhelming. 
And then it became where a lot of it outside the state of Minnesota. And then it got into a lot of litigation. Well, that's the kind of thing that'll keep you busy. That's for sure. And I think if you, you know, I used to teach a little class in the history of hardwood flooring and we used to say, should we keep this in the syllabus? And we would say, well, if you look at the cycles in the history of flooring, um, like right now, we're in like this 15-year cycle. You go from, you know, the stock market crash of the 20s, and somewhere in the 50s, they come up with flame-retardant carpet, and then we had a recession, and then we've had wars, and we've had, now we've got a pandemic. One of the things that even the NWFA charted far, far back was when we come out of those cycles, construction, like now, booms, pricing booms, and it's 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 Teflon. You, you could be you. There's not enough people to go around. That's the problem. Not only is there not enough people, we don't meet the demands of construction until it finally starts to drop again. And you've probably seen this cycle more than once in your career. What's the state of our industry right now in relation to? Do we have enough people? Where are we going to get them? And how long is this going to last? That's a loaded question. It is. <laughs> um, because I don't care what trade you're in. If you're mechanical, electrical, flooring. You just there's not enough there's not enough people to go around, especially in flooring. I mean, we're seeing, and, and this is where I get into a lot of the inspections. When you're looking at contracting, 80% of the work is preparation and 20% is installation. Mm -hmm. Well, subcontract installers want everything done. So they just walk in and put the floor down. Yes. And so a lot of the preparation, whether it's floor leveling, moisture testing, whatever it might be. So in order to, re, re, um, I'm going to say recruit some of the flooring contractors, you don't have the kids like I was coming out of high school and nurture them going into the trade. Today, it's instant gratification. So they want to have, if I'm not making union wages in less than six months, I'm going to find something else because this, this job is dirty, dusty, and, and uh, tough. Um, we kind of recruited after is looking at is, is trying to find employees was well, what, what kids are used to hard work, right? What kids are used to it. And so we went back to is athletics, football, baseball, uh, you know, basketball, hockey, they're used to being bumped around, bruised, get up the next day and do it all over again. And team skills. And team skills. And so really, and that's where we found the best source of having of, getting kids because we could also take, make them part of the team right away to show where they can move to. And that was some of the better moves that we had, but just trying to hire someone off the street. And they said they had a little woodworking that, you know, that didn't work today. Um, and especially after, I mean, my wife used to do the interviews and I would sit there and do um, a second interview when we had the old Minneapolis home book that was about three inches thick. I would have the kid, you know, a lot of times the kids would come in and said, yeah, I've been edging floors for over a year. Good. Well, I'm getting your edger position. Hold this book while I drink a Coke. <laughs> there you go. Well, then within a couple of minutes, the kid's back is shaking. He's shaking. And, you know, you haven't, you haven't edged nothing. And then you'll find another kid that'll come along and sit there. Well, you know, uh, do you mind, Mr. Reichow, if I just kind of move, you know, move my arms and kind of go along the floor? No, you go right ahead. I knew that kid could edge. Right. So. And that's something that, you know, his, his body was conditioned for it. And that's when we started thinking, you know, getting into some of the athletic kids, because then that would put them through college. But it also, too, is it gave them a trade to fall back on if they couldn't get work. Yeah. And, you know, you can't just you can't just learn to edge. I, there's a 
a kid that we hired, and he's brilliant. He works for a really good hardware flooring contracting company. He has uh, he grew up in the industry, has a college degree, and he worked f- since he was 12. And it worked perfect for what we needed here in our office because we need expert people or people that are willing to learn. And uh, somebody brought in an edger. I rebuilt it, and he picked it up and flipped it on. And I watched him edge, and I, I didn't want to be a jerk about it, but I, I said, who taught you to edge? You go left, right, center, left, field. He's coming two feet into the floor, three feet to the left, back again. And, I mean, there's so much literature and information, but who was it that indoctrinated this kid into doing this? Because there wasn't – I went back and showed him with a light. Like, there's Mark everywhere. I don't know where you learned this. But that means there's people out there right now that have been doing this 5, 10, 15 years that are still teaching the wrong things. They should be going to seminars like you do or schools like they offer uh, and kind of clean up some of that. The equipment's far better than what we had and, you know, with rotary machines, et cetera. If they make them lighter, we could probably get a lot more women into flooring that are, are crafty, they're good with their hands, uh, like, like a Jessica Peterson who you know, talks all the time about the work that she does. Um, it seems like when you think something like our industry wouldn't get different, boy, is it different and I got in it 40 years ago. You got in before that, even just mentioning parquet. I, don't, I haven't seen more than a parquet here in 25 years. When did you finally get through all of this and decide, I'm, I'm going to get into consulting? And be, when did you get away from the physical work of it? Oh, primarily most of it was 2010, 2012. Um, I started seeing the frustration I saw was, like you said, you're seeing guys that are doing figure eights with an edger and you're going, I shouldn't be here. This thing should not have gone. And you look at like, I looked at a floor yesterday, flawless. I mean, the materials were absolutely beautiful, quarter song, white oak. And the sanding was good, but the edging just it, it up around the fireplace. It was edger dips. And it's just like, wow, we're talking a $4 million home. And you're looking at it, it's, it's 90000 just on the floor. Right. And you're going, usually it'll end up having where, replacement costs will run anywhere from four to six times the original cost of the floor. So, you know, in this case here, by the time you get legal fees, it'll run 400,000 minimum for this guy. But it's something that I started after when you asked the question about consulting, seeing a lot of these mistakes and then looking at it, how can we prevent them? And that I started going after of doing education with NWFA, doing a lot of the seminars uh, going with installers and trying to have them understand the importance of standards and applying the standards, um, teaching them a few tricks of the trade. Uh, one of the things I used to put in my class, uh, for example, you know, like an inspector, I'm sure you've done it. You'll sit there and you've got reports that you got to write. And, you know, I got to finish up a report, you know, grab my laptop, lay in bed and just kind of like prop myself up maybe have a glass of wine, smoke a cigarette to find out that I wake up uh, to the fire department, wait, hauling me out of the bedroom. Oh, no. Before I send her cigarette burns on the, on the nightstand, cigarette burns on the carpet. And they came to the conclusion that, Roy, you ended up having the, the fire was caused from you smoking in bed. When the fire marshal did the investigation to find out that, and that's where the forensic comes in, is to be complete in your investigation, that the fire came from the short in the alarm clock next to the ashtray. Exactly. And that's where it's back to is, and and that's the part looking at is making the installer accountable for what his job is. And then inspectors accountable instead of like some of the classes I've taught. Well, I've got 
30 minutes to do an inspection. My job is to throw someone under the bus before I leave. Right. <laughs> and you still have not taken the time to do a thorough investigation on it. And that's where we became more forensic. And most of my inspections, 90% of them are destructive testing right. that we get into is taking floors apart to find out exactly what went wrong. You cannot label it. And I gave that in some of the classes that, you know, I've got some skin issues from being young and being out in the sun too much. And then how can I determine that if I don't have a biopsy? Exactly. I have to go to third, we have to go to third party testing or another source to find out what is the actual cause. Boy, you nailed that. I When people, you, you know, people will hound you. you. The second you go to, to inspect a floor, uh, somebody taught me once years ago, uh, Ray Smith from Patriot, he was like the international director for Bruce at the time. He just knew everything. He, he had been working in flooring his whole life. And um, we had to do a claim in Boston one day. He said, I'm going to go with you to see what we got here. And we walked onto this site, and this man and woman, they owned the home, were there, and there was a gentleman painting the mantle and this and that. And he shook everybody's hand, and he went over to the gentleman painting the mantle. And he said, hi, I'm Ray Smith. And he said, hi, I'm Bob so-and-so. I'm their brother-in-law. And he just stood there, and he said, and their attorney. Yeah. And he said, we're leaving. And they followed us all the way out. He said, we're not inspecting this floor. The lawyers talked to lawyers. And he said to me, if, I, if you ever go to an inspection for me alone again, we might have to let you go. That's a no-no. You don't go, you don't, there's a lot of things you don't do. You don't go to a house where the kids let you in. You don't go to a house without somebody there to witness everything you're doing, everything you're looking at. There's already contention. There's already issues. People are already upset. They're already throwing lawyers around. You got to be careful with all this. And when you were mentioning, you know, contractors and, and figurating with their edger, et cetera, just avoiding that trouble that you're going to get into, I hope that the contractors stay realized this this isn't a year or two thing. You're going to learn about flooring every day of your life. There is. I started studying this after I got out of it. There's. I learned something every single day. There's either something changing, something new, something I didn't know about, a market that I didn't know about. You know, as an inspector, and we talked about it earlier, you've got a different set of gears if you're going down to Tampa or Louisiana as opposed to being in, in Minnesota or San Francisco or, or in Arizona, that is a lot. That takes years, doesn't it? You can't just go to a, a certification program and pick that up. You really need to have some background on you, right? That's correct. I mean, that's one of the inspections I did up in Snowmass, uh, Colorado, that they had another inspector there. And then I, when I showed up, of course, and they had two attorneys there, the homeowner there. And I, the first thing I do is when I do my inspection, I want to take and walk every foot of the flooring to see what I'm up against to take, you know, looking at it, the worst concerns, the medium concerns and the shallow concerns. And then the other inspector, he went right after doing, you know, jumped on the floor and started doing his inspection. And um, in my case, when I got done, I walked 7,000 feet and I already knew what was wrong with the floor. Uh, basically just looking at the, you know, the geographical location, the type of house it was, and then getting into is having uh the gapping consideration we had a lot of splitting that was going on within the planks and i went right after mechanical room and the attorney right away said well you're not a mechanical engineer so you know you can't get you in there so i'm just looking he did not know that i also trained with ape aware um for dealing with uh, different uh, humidification systems uh whole house ventilators and i've done seminars with uh ape aware on that so once we got in the mechanical room uh, the red light was on the humidifier, knowing that the humidifier was turned off. 
And so then once they opened it, you know, they, in order to open up the cover, it was kind of, kind of funny because, well, the general, well, I don't have a screwdriver. I gave him, a, I gave him a dime, so this should work, you know. And so he opened up the cover, and right away I could see that the canister in there was completely filled with, with deposits. So it's like shut down the humidifier. We had five more or four more to look at, and um, the three next were identical. And the last one was up in the attic, and I said I don't need to see that one because that one's for the areas with carpets, so I wasn't worried about that. But it was just in in the long term, it came back to is the general contractor, the architect and the owner felt it was more important to have the humidification for the areas in carpet to avoid static electricity rather than protecting the wood floor. Yeah, that's ridiculous. And, you know, and, and this is where you're back to is every floor. And, and my, my mentor, Jens Wilson told me every floor will tell you a story. It's up to you to listen to what that floor is telling you. And that's when I walk a floor and the experience of knowing of what, what, what's the causes of these conditions where to look, not to sit there and be blindsided by what someone else said, someone else. And today we get into the, a lot of the thermostats that will have actually trending. So I will know what the humidity and temperature was inside and outside in um, 2020. And so it's back to his understanding the systems that you're looking at. Um, and that way you can validate where the, where the floor failed. You're 100% right. When when I'll go to look at a floor, and you know, I'll I'll get an idea talking with somebody where we're heading here. Like 98% sure I, I know what this is. And then I'll say to them, well, I'm 98% sure I know what this is. And they say, well, what are you looking for? I go, I'm going to go look for the 2% because that's where I'm going to be wrong. If it's something, and you know my thing is flooring mysteries. So when there's a little something odd, something's not quite right, and there's something blatantly wrong here, I will focus on the fact that it's too easy to assume that that 98% factor, it's, it's moisture in the basement, it's just that the other thing. And um, you're talking about April air system. I've got a blog coming up on a mystery up in New York that you and I are going to talk about because not only did they have an incredible April air system that would have saved this whole situation, it literally had a meter in the basement that was telling them, our system isn't big enough for what's going on here. You need a bigger system. And we were able to correct a lot of that. But boy, there was a, there's a meter in their home telling them there is a problem and it's going to affect your flooring. And uh, that now that we have controls like that, I've been to homes where they have a humidification system and I'll say, you know, this isn't operational. And somebody cut the water supply off of it and cut the thermostat controls. But they're telling their expert, well, we have controls. No, you don't. That's why, and you know, you walk into a home especially here in New England, I went into a home and there's a woman and she's got a tissue and her, her lips are bleeding. And we were almost sick when we walked in. It was like walking into an oven. The floors were gapped to beat the band. And I said, look at your beautiful cherry cabinets. They're splitting and your drywall is splitting. And we went in the basement. And I said, now you have humidification, but it's all been disconnected. And she said, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, now they're just turning a blind eye to what we talked about, that the floor always tells the story. So why can't we just stick with what the floor is telling us and, and let's correct that? You have to run into that constantly. I do. And that's, again, with the controls. And when we start dealing with um, consulting on the front side, I want those controls in place for mechanical that will be able to have the a mechanical contractor or you'll have a service that will be 
in other words is they it'll go through their guest wi-fi and he will get constant readings of what that is and in that if there's something wrong with say a sensor in the furnace sensor in the in the in the stat they will know right away in order to get that part ordered and get that replaced and like you said if it was water supply cut to the you know uh and of course the, the mechanical contractors say i love you roy because that just increased my bid by thirty thousand. exactly you know when you're, when you're dealing with a you know an eight thousand square foot house or more so it's like you know um some of the some of the in-floor heat um control panels are another one um we see that a lot of i'm going to say economy mechanical uh, mechanical contractors doing in-floor hydronic heating they'll run like one zone or two zones on the, on the main floor well if you have a floor a zone that's covered by carpet tile and wood you're going to have failure if you have tile you got to have a zone carpet zone and wood a zone you have to separate them and that's where when you go downstairs and look at the controls i've seen 25 thermostats in the mechanical room all for the different zones and the owner will have a secondary heat uh, for a forced air system upstairs in a living room or wherever and when they say oh it's cold in here they'll turn that up but they'll never get the they'll never get the temperature up on the on the in-floor heat and that's why where like you said you're looking at is is the floor gapped or are we looking at gap to panels uh you know crown molding uh you know we're looking at far as shrinkage and uh, drywall corners so this is where you start trying to identify where the issues are and that's where I, I started a lot of my consulting was trying to separate these issues and how we can prevent them from occurring and you know the most important zone the exterior of the house yes i'll ask people do you have setbacks they go what's that and i go well how old's the system remember when uh, the first article i ever wrote i think for for the magazine was about uh radiant heat and hardwood Remember, they ran tubing everywhere, and then October would come around, and someone would crash it on, and they would say, the floor has been shocked. And literally, it, the floors would be shocked. The subfloor, the plywood, everything in the house got shocked. And we went back to the radiant heat people and said, you know, you have a wonderful idea here, but we can't change trees or wood or homes. What can you do? Started insulating the material, setting up. Like you said, they could be 10, 20, 30 zones in the basement of a house. Boiler doesn't get over 120. It used to be 180. I saw one, this one I'm telling you about, there were so many regulator valves, each one had a different temperature that went from the 120 to the zone in the floor, and the setback outside was telling them, cold weather's coming, let's get the floors up to 75, or the tubing to 75, so that the floor wouldn't be shocked when the system comes up and running. That the, You make that point, the technological advantage today starts at construction, or you ask... You ask things like, uh, people will call me and I'll say, how old's a home? What do you have for heat? What's a subfloor? And they go, well, I just wanted to ask you what kind of wood I should put in. And my mind's thinking, no, we have a lot we got to head off at the pass before you tell me what we're going to put. And you mentioned earlier, we're loaded these days with 12-inch plank, 13, 14, 3, 11, and an eighth coming out of what they call flooring mills. And they are not, there's not a kiln from here to probably Pennsylvania. What are, how are they kiln drying this stuff? And we get call after call after call. You know, they used to say back when I was a kid, squeaks make squawks. Well, you're making material and you're specking to, you know, glue assist it. And it's going to be a nightmare. It's going to be noisy. It's going to look beautiful because it's wood, but it was never a kiln dried property. We know that the material has to be as comfortable as human beings are basically, right? Correct. You know, the thing that you see that when an individual goes in to shop for flooring, typically is they've seen stuff on the internet, what I like, 
they'll go into a retailer and look what, what colors do you have, what widths do you have, well, beveled edges, eased edges, and nothing is ever done on an installation pre-check. And that is the questionnaire of type of home, size of home, type of heat, you know, uh, and type of subfloor, because I'm gonna lose the sale if you ask me too many of these questions. So they, and I've, I've worked with sales teams that they said, you're asking all the wrong questions. I gotta have within six to eight minutes, this person in my pocket or I'm gonna lose the sale. And if you're going through with all these technical questions before you start, they're gonna walk off into another retailer store and they'll sell them according to color, width, thickness, whatever it might be. And that's where we're seeing a lot of issues today. And it's just like the pre-check is something that's so important. It's not pushed upon on the education of the retailers or the sales staff. And, you know, it's like, no, I want to, I want to push a wide plank floor. Do you have in floor heat? Yes, I do. Well, is it, how old's the system? Well, 15 years old. We know it's not a modern technology. You know, it's not going to be 120 degrees. It's going to be somewhere in that 150 to 180 range. And so we know that, you know what, we're going to have to change the floor. We used to have a sheet that we called was a, um, it was a gapping sheet. And so what we had was, you know, like a, a 30 seconds of an inch. We then we went to a thickness of a dime, penny, quarter, nickel, silver dollar. And so when they would say, I want to have a uh, eight inch wide, solid white oak plank. And I have no humidification. We have hot water, baseboard heat. And you'd show them the gaps, the gap chart and said, can you accept this gap the size of a silver dollar? No. Well, then we got to change it down to a smaller floor, narrower width, or move you into a quarter sawn floor or something else. And you're back to is, well, I don't want a floor that narrow. And so this is where this kind of understanding of because of the condition of their home, this is what the acceptability that they have to adapt to if they want to have that wide plank floor. When we look at a lot of the homes here in Minnesota built in the early 1900s, they were all based off of inch and a half wide. A lot of guys called them fingerboards. You had choices. <laughs> Oak, maple, birch. That's it. But in that, when they designed these, that when you looked at a solid floor in an inch and a half wide, with zero, they had um, stand-up radiators, no humidification, newspaper for insulation, single pane glass, and they cranked the temperatures in those boilers so grandma was happy at 72, 74 degrees. But the gapping between the planks were minimal because they were narrow width material and typically most of it was quarters on. So you look at far as expectations and that's what we tried focusing on is trying to get your sales on expectations, not just in color, but in the performance. And that's where then they started seeing a little more on production of sales because most people like I said they walk in this is the color I want this is the width I want I you know don't want a beveled edge or I want an eased edge never once talked about the performance of their house right it's an aesthetic thing yes and then when you're back to it it's when the failure occurs six months later well why wasn't this discussed and then when it gets to litigation it'll go I was never told that and so it's back to is the homeowner will play that trump card as I was never told that you're right. And the other is, as we see where, like you mentioned earlier about flooring contractors, flooring contractors will typically have their own or they'll have and pass out the um, maintenance and warranty guidelines for the manufacturer or their own sanded and finished product or retailers. They're going, I sell over 60 products. How the hell do I know what am I going to give them at the end? You know, 
So they give them a generic one for the builders and they'll say, wash the floor with water and vinegar. And it's going, well, right. you got an oil finished floor. You can't wash that, you know? So it's back to his proper, giving the proper documentation when they're done. And that's what's happening with re- where I see retailers is such an issue on that. I think that's people listening to the podcast should understand. There are people that do flooring inspections of all degrees, and sometimes they're running their flooring company, and that's a side thing. What's really rare and different about what you do is, as a firm, as a representative firm, you're given the opportunity to take all your experience and the industry experience and be able to kind of extrapolate and transfer that information to a contractor for a number of reasons. One, get the job done right so that these things don't happen. Second of all, it, it kind of shoots you in the foot. This is a good way to avoid needing an inspector and to avoid being into a claim because when it t- comes time to need an inspector, uh, they're pretty important to have. I know when I was interviewing Howard Brickman, he said engineered flooring right now is being so abused, it's probably going to keep him busy right through all of his retirement. Yes. There's just it, – it, I that's all we get these days is – the more they bring in these new contractors and they, they get that first $1,200 cash in their pocket or whatever, and they say, I'm going to be a floor person, I know I, I could do this the rest of my life. I see more trouble now than I, I did a decade ago. Um, and you, from what you do, what I like from reading your website and from, from the way you talk about what we do in our industry, nobody answers the question, why enough? You know, don't go in the water till half an hour after you swim and just leave it. No, Why? I had a guy the other day, I said, don't take that new $7,000 sander and run it on a generator. Because he asked me, what size generator should I get? I said, don't, tell your builder to, don't do that. And I, and I should have elaborated more as to why. I did tell him with the particular machine he had, as that system cycles up, cycles down, takes a draw, he can put a little wave into the floor. Um, wasn't a week later, he came back, blew out the capacitors in his $7,000 sander. Where are these made? Germany. When are we going to get them? No one knows. I took them out of a brand new machine and got him up and running. And luckily, they arrived in enough time that the next person didn't get, you know, scavenged. What you do and that you provide that's going to keep you busy ad infinitum is keeping people out of trouble, educating the flooring contractor, but they still, job for job for job, have to get this to the consumer, don't they? Yes. And the one thing we've done. With a lot of the installers um, who've had, I'm going to say that they have faced me on inspection or in litigation, they have come back to me and said, is there a way we can work with you, but I can't afford to sit there and have you come out and do a you know, consultation and do like a phone consult. And so we do a lot of times we're on a 15-minute uh, billing increment. So if you call me up and we go through a, a job situation and then at that point, we'll sit there and bill them on that uh, 15 minutes. But what they do a lot of times is they're trying to get confirmation that the general contractor wants to push them forward. Their gut feeling says, no, we should hold off until we get better control. And then they will say, and then I will usually tell them to follow up with an email uh, to the general contractor that they've, cons- call- they've contacted me as a consultant on the project. And this is where it should follow. And so if they violate that and says still perform and go forward, at least they have some some information showing that, hey, it was your call to push this job through and your responsibility. And so a lot of a lot of flooring contractors have gone that route simply as because it's 
isn't not only just economic, but it's like on the fly is no one and their gut feeling is typically 100% spot on that we don't have proper moisture conditions, we don't have proper environment. And so it's like, what's going to happen if I push forward, you will be liable. And so it's back again is making sure that they comply. And I usually will request them to, if it's done with a homeowner is to comply with them with the homeowner. For example, if I'm working for you, and the general wants me to do this, and you get the email as well. You're going to go back to the general and says, "I don't want a faulty floor. You're going to have, you're going to get your job done right." And so it's pushing the general into that position to delay that installation until we get proper conditions. And oh, yeah. that's been that's been pretty pretty productive there. I mean, it's just it's been rewarding for me as you know that the installers are trying to uh, step forward and and you know their gut feeling is you know the gut feeling that we had when we were contracting. So it's you know. If I don't have any issues with that. I like to get move forward in the right direction. Find a lot of flooring contractors, and some of them, rightly so, won't won't go anywhere near a builder because of uh, deadlines and closings. My wife's in real estate, and she'll be held up by some form of flooring in one way or the other. And typically, I'll say, "Well, you know, this is it's the right thing." And she'll say, "Well, we have a closing, and the builder wants to. Well, does the builder want a seven thousand dollar disaster that's going to last forever with the bad taste in their mouth from this? This is what." pushed our industry decades ago towards pre-finished. Even when it first was made with waxes and big, huge bevels, builders didn't care because they wanted to remove the hardwood flooring contractor because they made their lives miserable. Uh, Slow dry times, too busy to get to closings, to get the house to market, and they couldn't wait to jump on nailing down anything they could to close out, and it was cheaper and it eliminated the flooring person. But over the last several decades, not only did the pre-fin, well, not only did pre-finish products get better. How much trouble has that caused to the refinishing market? People come in here and say, "I just spent a thousand dollars in paper, and I'm doing a dining room, and they're just buying, you know, regular silicone carbide or, or paper, etc." And they don't even know that the ceramic paper they've been using to sand pine was was made for pre-finished flooring. Technologically, there's still a lot going on that's changed. It's better. But has anybody adapted to it? We still have flooring contractors in our area that if you don't use, you know, an oil-modified poly with red oak, then you're not getting the right floor and you're not, you don't have the right floor guy. But then, as you know, there are flooring pros that open their resume up to people. I, I always started with aesthetics. What do you want to see? And stop right there. That gives me a direction. It's going to help me eliminate 200 choices. Let's go straight to the technical part. What's the subfloor? What's the age of the house? People get you know, flabbergasted when you ask them the age of a house. If you're in a certain area, sometimes I can tell you what the wood is before I go there. Certain side of town only had one lumber yard for 100 years. You can see a lot of this, like you and I talked about, the floor tells the story. Historically, um, when we, I was mentioning the history of flooring, what was it pre-54? You couldn't get an FHA loan unless the, the material was fire retardant, which would be hardwood flooring. Dalton, Georgia, which seems to be the place that messes up us every time from enveloping a um, flame retardant carpet to the development of some of the newer products in laminates. Uh, There's this technological curve that always seems to knock us down a peg, but we come back. Right now, you can see it, right? These guys are busy to beat the band. They are, and you know, you're correct when you said the pre-finished market did capture a lot of it simply was convenience. Yeah. The thing that I like when you look at um, flooring performance, for example, and you're looking at the difference between, I'm going to say, New Orleans and Phoenix, two totally different markets, or Phoenix and Miami, 
What we're doing today is we're looking at of having products made as a general concept of having, okay, it's 7.5% moisture content, whatever. When I look back in the history of flooring, and I believe it was in uh, Versailles Palace in France where they had a parquet in there, and that was done in 1678, I think. There's no mechanical. It's a, it's a stone building. You know it's damp. It's cool. And yet those floors perform perfectly. And why was that? because the floors were designed for that environment. And also when they did a pattern floor, they also did a picture frame around it. The reason for that was, is the expansion and contraction would occur within the picture frame so they could lay hundreds of feet without any type of expansion space. So it was engineered and designed for that product and that in that time. Today, you're looking at, well, we're taking some of this French oak and you're bringing it from, you know, their guidelines are 40 to 60% relative humidity for maintenance. And we're throwing it in Bozeman, Montana, where they can't see over 20% relative humidity. So it's a back again is they didn't do the checklist on the product that they're selecting. And this is where it failures. Can we get that product to work? Yes, we can. If we ended up having that product that was designed and built and dried to that condition. I wrote one that I had when I was on vacation in Mexico and they had uh, looked like about three and a half, three inch flooring, tongue and groove, stored underneath lean to, ready for shipment. And you're going, what that? Of course, my wife, she's sitting here saying, you're on vacation, don't quit looking at flooring. You know? Right, right. And so, but I couldn't help it. So I went over and shot some pictures. And the thing is, is their humidifiers are, are coolers. They're, they don't take humidity out of the air. And so everything is still damp. And so you're still looking at that. I'm looking, you know what? They're acclimating that material for their environment and they will not have any failure issues because of it. If that material was shipped to the U.S. and put into Phoenix, it's going to have some major gapping. So it's back to, we have not as an industry or the retailers have focused so hard on color, size, width, but they haven't figured of what the geographic location and requirements. You've gone through it already in the, in the podcast, but it's really important to know that in your area, someone always told me is buy your material from your local uh, source, your local, you know, where the materials are made for, I'm in Minnesota. So we buy from Wisconsin, pretty much the Midwest. All our materials are shipped out at seven, seven and a half percent. Acclimation is minimal to none. But if I brought in something from uh, uh, French oak from Europe, I'm going to have to acclimate that for maybe a month. And so a lot of times you'll have less problems if you, if you buy local from a local manufacturer or a local mill because they're producing it for their geographical location. You know, when I was in Jacksonville and Orlando, after the first week, I don't think we even talked about acclimation ever again. It, my warehouse was bigger than anyone I've ever had, and the wood was coming from Georgia to us, it, like a one-day trip. And I'll tell you, everything clocked in day after day at 13%. Went in 13, was in my warehouse at 13, was in people's houses at 13. Um, it wasn't like air conditioning was going to change a lot of what the environment of the floor was and people leave for most of the day and it could be 20 percent higher in that home hotter higher heavier unless they controlled everything uh and you're right we had a floor in scottsdale arizona and it won all these major awards it was a failure in boston it was a 98 percent failure it was solid three-eighths pre-finished won every major award that was and we spent two years of our salespeople doing nothing but writing up claims replacing floors um and i've been to parties where i saw probably part of the two percent that no one even knew they already had a problem and i would look at that floor and go is that this floor 
And they'd say, yes, is that wrong, what's happening? And say, yeah, you should have called somebody because they've been writing checks on that floor. That's rare because, like you said, if you go back to um, like the breakers in Rhode Island, you said the palace at Versailles, the Sawyers knew what they were doing. They knew their wood technology. They knew how to quarter. Imagine the first guy that bought a forest full of uh, cheap red oak trees and said, I'm going to make me some wine barrels. This is going to be fantastic. Can't make a wine barrel out of, out of red oak. Or the I look today, they have the commercials where the, the rum and the whiskey makers say talk about their fine golden blend. Well, you got a white oak barrel full of tannic acid and you burnt it with a torch. What color do you think it's going to be? It's going to be golden brown. Uh, you know, Roy, I was really excited when the magazine said that I'd get a chance to talk with you. Because like I said, I, I, I have to blow through a lot of stuff when we're doing the editing. And there's a lot of really good people that do the technical work going over the magazine, looking at the articles. And I always make sure I go through yours first. And then I go to the other longer ones. You're always right to the point. You know exactly what you're talking about. And there's always... Your articles are a lot like a floor inspection. There's always a solution. There's nothing hanging. There's no dangling chads. Um, I really, really super appreciate the fact that I had a chance to talk with you about this stuff because you're one of the guys that I look up to as I'm still trying to pave my way consulting and studying flooring and the engineering part of it. Um, I would like to just rifle through some really quick questions with you if you don't mind, and then I'm going to let you scoot so we can. I hope we can do this again 100 times. Sounds good. All right. We're just going to go with quick answers here. In, all, in your flooring career and everything that you do in consulting-wise, you got any flooring pet peeves or there's something that really bothers you? Just a lack of education. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's primarily just, and it's, like I said, everything is online. So these kids today, I'm, I'm, t- I'm calling kids that are, you know, 38 and under. But, I mean, it's te- yeah. you can get everything technically on, online. So it's, that's a pet peeve. Is It's available, but they just don't, they don't read it. If you weren't doing what you've been doing forever now, what would you have been doing if, if you weren't in the wood flooring industry? Selling vacuum cleaners. Because you're like, you're a people guy. Sell a vacuum. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. No. Uh, has, is there anybody in the industry that you've heard about, seen, talked about, that you haven't met yet that you'd, you'd like to hang out with or, or, or speak with? Um, Howard Brickman is one. I've met him several times. We've chatted. But the one thing that's really, for me, was to be a, a joint class. I mean, you look at some of the things that being able to do a joint class with some of your peers. And so it's something to me would be very rewarding to do that. I, I so my last question for you, this is putting you on the hot seat. What do you got in that house? You got some carpet in there? Is there any carpet in your house? About 70%. Is it wood under those things or is it, is it just carpet? Concrete and plywood. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, listen, I really, really, really genuinely appreciate you taking the time to talk with me, Roy. I, I think, you know, we could do this forever. And I really appreciate everything that you do in this industry. And it's just really uh, an honor for me to hang out with you for a little bit. So I, thank you again. Thank you. I appreciate doing it. Those of us at Wood Floor Business would like to extend our special thanks to Roy Ryko, not only for taking the time to be on this episode of the podcast, but also for his years of tireless dedication to spreading education in the wood floor industry, whether that's been in the pages of the magazine, in the blog, or in educational seminars. You can find Roy's many articles and blogs by going to woodfloorbusiness.com and putting in his name. That's Roy, R-E-I-C-H-O-W, in the search bar. Thanks for listening to this episode of All Things Wood Floor. And if you liked this podcast, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. 